Right, hello, welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the Skinny. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Lewis Robertson. Hello. Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahi Baru. We're back in Upload Studios in Leith to talk about the films. It's maybe not going to be a thigh slapper this week, as there's a couple of quite serious films to talk about, but we are also going to shout a lot about how Margaret Thatcher is bad. Which is always a good time. That's going to be a fun... That's a fun time. That's going to be fun banter all the way. Uh, <laughs> Jamie is ostensibly on holiday from work today and has brought the energy of someone who is on holiday <laughs> but still wants to stick their oar in, so that's good. Um, and me and Lewis have been in the office on our own all after all morning and... Uh, yeah, I think we're we've both gone a little bit star crazy because we had the blinds all shut at one yeah, point. Yeah, so we were as well, watching the was... like weather oscillate wildly <laughs> from sun to rain to sun to rain to snow at one point. Yeah, we've been having a great time. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about Blue Jean, the new film from George Oakley. We're going to be talking about Santo Mer, uh, Alice Diop's new film. We're going to be talking about Thatcher, bad brackets films about. Uh, and some other bits as well but we'll start off with the customary what has everyone been watching uh, Jamie do you want to go first well like the rest of the world I've been watching The Last of Us oh is it this. good no, uh, I'm a little bit disappointed so far but people have been going crazy for episode 3 so how many have come out in the uh, UK 3 so far Okay, uh, but I haven't seen the third one okay. um, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that it's it's non-linear, so it's sort of, every episode sort of flashes back to a time in the past, and I feel like that puts something new in context in the new episode. But uh, great cast, I can't complain about the cast. I just feel like I've seen it before, like I feel like I've not seen anything brand new, so I'm hoping that there's going to be something different, because it just seems to me like your standard zombie apocalypse thing right now. Um, although that's p- pleasingly enjoyable i just feel like people are going a bit crazy for <laughs> it's it it's kind know? of the reason i never played the game is because when the game came out i thought like it looks very like good and emotive and, and polished but i was sort of like well it's just zombies isn't it like they're sort of weird mushroom zombies but they're just is, is it, it like the narrative or something yeah people like they get attached to the characters and stuff like that and it's like i'm really and that's why it's probably been adapted into a tv series because it's such a good story but yeah. i don't really know what's super different about it. I think as far as I know from people I know who've played and loved The Last of Us, it is a video game that is actually quite well written, mm. which then translates into a TV show that you would want to watch. Whereas yeah. most video games, we were talking about this on the bus down, most video game stories are actually quite derivative of other media like film and TV and books and the joy of the video game is you get to play as the main character from the book or film or TV show. Yeah. It's why people, when people say you should make Grand Theft Auto into a film, that film already exists and it's one of those strict to video ones with so like... So do people say that? Who is saying that? Well, when people say like, oh this this game's very popular, if only it were a film. Yeah, but if people saying that about Grand Theft Auto? That. Yeah. Well, I mean like, you know, they made Doom I'm into not saying, a film. I'm not saying Yuri, they're right. This, this is what made, the people uh, say. Doom into a film, which, yeah. you know, is a game that people love because you get to run around in smash monsters up and then yeah. they made a film of it and everyone was like well this isn't a good film no it was like i know <laughs> this is the thing with the last of us right is that the context of like video game adaptations have been so bad that maybe it's just that this one is good perhaps but also people just like love hyperbole so yeah. like you know sure. if anything is like moderately decent like people go crazy for it so basically twitter is <laughs> full of shit you know <laughs> Great. <laughs> Shots fired, early doors. Uh, Lewis, you got anything else to say other than everyone's wrong about a thing that they all like? <laughs> On Last of Us? No, just generally. 
Uh, uh, what have you been watching? Uh, <laughs> I um, I haven't been watching a lot of TV for a change, uh, but I'm like quite, I'm sort of caught up with the Oscar noms in a way that I'm, I'm usually not. So I wasn't planning on watching All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I haven't read the book or seen the other film adaptation. Um, and also 1917, I didn't really like it, sort of left a bad taste in my mouth. It's the last sort of war film that everyone went crazy about. But my partner is a fan of the book, as much as you can be a fan of the book. But um, So we watched it. The way that all two-and-a-half-hour anti-war epics are meant to be watched, which is on the shitty Netflix app on my PlayStation. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's like the thing where I get why it got an Oscar nomination. It's, again, that sort of like film-as-tech expo where it's like, look at all the new ways we can realistically depict people getting blown up but other than that there's nothing to me about the filmmaking or the um, screenwriting that like restates the relevance of the book um like there's this i think it's inserted for the film is this like intrigue plot about an evil general who wants to keep the war going who i guess is meant to represent you know the 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 many generals who like were you know uh, ignorant to the atrocities that were going on but you know it's that thing where it's like I, okay i don't really need that to know that war is bad especially if i'm like watching all quiet on the west front i just think it's like avengers endgame levels of gratuitous violence and things being blown up and i think that like framing it as a oh isn't it sad that they're all like young boys who are gonna die doesn't really take away from the fact that we're sensationalizing this violence so I get, again, why it got nominated for an Oscar. I just really hope it doesn't win, like, Best Picture or anything like that. I don't like think that. it will win Best no. Picture, no. But, like, yeah. So that's that's me, all quiet on the Western Front. I guess the thing with the because I studied the book in first year mm. of uni, and the thing with it was that it was, like, so remarkable as, like, showing the depth of, like, the atrocities that were happening. And it was, like, one of the first to kind of be doing that in this, like, explicitly anti-war way, which is very interesting. And I guess now, if you want to adapt that, like, how would you do that? So maybe it's kind of bringing it. I say, why am I talking about this? I haven't actually seen the film, but I'm just like, yeah, like, like, like bold, Anna, here. I'm, I'm, I'm very receptive <laughs> like, to sort of like, I'm very receptive to someone saying, hey, there's a new sort of anti-war film. We're taking the 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 idea of all quiet on the Western Front, and we're kind of like trying to make it restate its relevance. You know, try and like yeah. get a wider appeal. And I think that they haven't really done that other than showing using that technology that Marvel and Disney use to make the war look extra explosive, mm. which just doesn't really amount to much for me. Um, but I should read the book, and I'm sure it's very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Academy love the war film, is the thing. Like, they will just, it will always just be not Like, my problem with 1917, which this doesn't necessarily have, is that it was unnecessarily othering. Like, 1917 for a film set during World War One, which, you know... You kind of have to state there's no bad guys in World War One, but in 1917 we follow these two British soldiers and they meet like ruthless Germans at every impasse. They like save a German from a burning plane and then he gets his knife out and tries to attack them and then they like find that the Germans have rigged their abandoned bunkers to explode for no reason other than they're just evil. So it's like a pretty thoughtless film, 1917, but again like, yeah. I guess it is impressive if you're in a cinema and the explosion's really, really loud and that person's being blown to bits in a way that resembles someone being blown to bits in real life. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to defend Sam Mendes, given that he made Empire of Light, and that's such a fucking terrible film. But I really like 1917. 
<laughs> so I might unfortunately have to. But no, I know what you mean. It is very, it is reductive. I think all war films to a certain extent are mm -hmm. reductive. Like if you're representing that, like there's a kind of certain power implicit in representation, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Many Oscar noms, but does not get the coveted Lewis Robertson seal of approval. <laughs> Are, are we going to do an Oscar chat? I guess we'll save all our Oscar opinions for that. Or are we going to? Are we going to do are, it like are, before the Oscars? What, anything, any, any first impressions? Or are we I mean, that's stupid. <laughs> it's my main first impression. Yeah, I, I just haven't. I I've just been like, haven't seen that one. Haven't seen that one. Which one's that one? Like yeah. the fact that Avatar got nominated for Best Picture above After Sun. Yeah, is ridiculous. I mean. I, I'm kind of I'm kind of quite up for everything everywhere all at once. Even though I'm out of the sure. four of us, I'm probably the least in love with that film. I love all the performances, and I was so heartened to see them win at the Golden Globes. Like mm -hmm. my heart for everyone in that film is like bursting. So that's the one sort of bright spot spot for me. And I think they may win. Like imagine Michelle. You I think win. they will win. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Which is nice. That yeah. is very nice. Like how can they top those like KQ? Is it KQ? Who is his name? KQ uh, one. Yeah, like his his um his speech was like so beautiful. Like, how can he top that? It's like I don't know, but uh, but then also I would quite happily see Barry Coon win or like Colin Farrell's probably win. And like I, like I like I'll kind of I'm kind of rooting for all the the favorites this year, which I don't usually do. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of like people that I like that got nominated. I think across the board though, like and I think especially like the best picture, best director, best director was a joke. Like that was really stupid. Like, what was the, what it was just like a bunch of like men, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and like for films that felt very like the Fablemans and things like that. That it's just very. Oh, it felt like, like that. That amateur. Well, no, like I liked <laughs> it, but it feels like a career nomination. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It's that Rather thing where than it's like, you know, what's unpleasant to me about the Oscars is, like you say, this year it's actually like a lot of really good people who are like championing these films that everyone seems to love, but a lot of the time it's like you know. I don't really care about Leonardo DiCaprio and I don't want to watch people who are already intensely rich and famous and probably like in a very sketchy way get dressed up and pat each other on the back. Like, yeah. a, you know, it's 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 a sort of ceremonial idolatry. That, yeah, it's industry, isn't it? Yeah. It's the thing. I mean, it is going to be doubly funny when Steven Spielberg wins now. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> when they give it to James Cameron. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God, stop. Let's roll. He didn't get nominated yeah, for director. Uh, but he'll be up there getting his producer thing for <laughs> Avatar. I finally did it. I showed you all the way of the water. Uh, Anahe, what have you been watching? Um, I have been watching a lot of Friends. Nice. Yeah, thank you. Good stuff. That's all I've got to say on that Cool. <laughs> Probably as good a place as I need to move on. Yep. <laughs> Right, first up today is Santo Mer, which is Alice Diop's debut feature film, winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, it stars Kaiji Kagami as Rama, who is a writer attending the trial of Laurence Coley, who is played by Guzlaji Malanda, who is a woman accused of murdering her one-year-old daughter. So the film is based on a real-life court case which Alice Diop attended and... Yeah, it's her first feature, but her background is in documentaries, which she's been making for about, is it about a decade now? Alice Diop's been making documentaries. Um, so yeah, background in documentary, which really does come across Lewis in Santo Mar, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I didn't really know anything about Alice Diop, but, you know, I liked this film. It was really interesting. So I did a bit of Googling around and found out her sort of like 
a, a history with documentary. And it, it totally makes sense for the film. It, it makes sense that this is her first like narrative fiction film. Because the entire time I was thinking how interestingly it was structured, that we have this main character, right? We know that Rama is our main character. Um, she's the one who sort of carries us from scene to scene, and yet she has the least dialogue. She has the least bearing on the plot, the least sort of involvement in the scenes. And I think it, it's really the you know nature of a documentarian to create a main character who is an observer or spectator um who who sees this highly publicized trial and has it like it impact their worldview and speak to their anxieties and it's still well done that's the thing like we still recognize an emotive change in rama even though she says virtually nothing um but it is just very much like fly on the wall and we sort of learned as well that alice diop has this very particular story where she went to a very similar real life trial um i think also while pregnant so sort of like fills the role of is very autobiographical and yeah it's just um it, it it's a really sort of m measured exploration into the feelings that come up with these kind of spectator trials um and i think people will like this film i think like people who typically don't go and see foreign language films will definitely get a lot out of this. I think as well because the courtroom setting means that people sort of take their turn to speak and, and say things with such clarity. And then the interpretation is largely done in, in your head. You're allowed, you're encouraged to make your own judgments. So I, I really like this film. I think that it matches up quite well with the work that Alice Diop seems to have done so far. Um, but I know that, Peter, you were a little less keen on it for that reason. Well, I felt that it was... I think the thing is that it is a little bit, to my eyes, stagey. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, just that there are a lot of long speeches and a lot of focus on individual kind of like... Not monologues, but like long conversations. In a way, Jamie, it's quite an unusual film in the way that it's structured and the way that it unwinds the story that it's telling. Yeah, it kind of it did knock me for six a little bit because I was kind of expecting. I had I heard this was great. All I heard was like buzz saying I to see it, um, and I think I was maybe expecting something a bit more straightforward, like a like a normal kind of courtroom drama, but it's not that at all. Um, it's interesting you, you mentioned documentarian because like yes, she, her style is documentary in that she um, observes. She just lets the camera observe. There's no kind of editor, editorializing. She, she doesn't do anything fancy with the camera. There's no dramatic music. Um, no editing to like suggest to let us interpret it. So we just gotta like look at the performance and sort of make up our own minds. So that is very much like a documentary. But in other ways, it's not like a documentary at all. It's so mysterious. Like um, you know, if if you want to go and know what happened in this case, I think you're gonna struggle because it 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 intentionally um is subjective. Like like we're we're kind of seeing things from from Rama's point of view, and sometimes like Rama will tune out and not listen to what's happening. So, so it will go from being very um, very clear what's happening where we're having a, a statement from either the judge or um, uh, the woman on trial but then Rama will look out the window and she'll flash back to her own childhood and it's, it seems to me much more about a film about motherhood and mm. about um, mm. being an immigrant it's, it's like it's dealing with those two kind of clashes and uh, not not clashes those two sort of states of being and also being the kind of isolation that comes from this so like um so it turns out Rama is pregnant as well, and, if, and, and she's she's an immigrant, but she also has other similarities. She also has uh, it seems like they both both women had kind of uneasy relations with their mother, like sort of quite a cold 
relationships. We see like flashbacks to Rama, um, and it's sometimes it's uh, also home video footage. Of, and it seems like her and her mother didn't get on, or her mother didn't acknowledge her almost. And yeah, this is this weird thing about you know you grow someone inside you. It's, I mean, it's it's, it's hard for me to comprehend as a, as somebody who's never going to give birth. Uh, it's given you know you you create a child. It's part of you, but also it's it's this separate thing. And I think it's it's dealing with that kind of that strange feeling of being a mother and like what how do you feel your life has to change by becoming a mother you know this, this young woman who had all this promise she was going to be uh you know she's a, a great thinker she had the ambitions to be a philosopher but she comes up against racism at, at university but also having a baby changes all that as well she becomes isolated um uh, because of her partner her partner uh, we we hear in the testimony that he was sort of ashamed of her. He would sort of hide her away from her family. So it's, so it's, so yeah, it's not really about the story at all. It's about the state of being a woman who is isolated, uh, and it's in Rama sort of recognizing the same feelings that she's having with this woman um, in the courtroom. So it's, it's a really kind of intelligent film, really. It's like a, and I think you have to bring a lot to it and sort of sort of join together all of the dots because if you're just expecting a cathartic why did this woman kill her baby? You're not mm-hmm. going to get that answer. It doesn't really, it's not really interested in that answer. It's more interested in why um, this woman feels like this in the first place. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, like, that's the thing. That's sort of what I mean by, well, documentarian in the sense that you're right, like, we have a character who's sitting here observing this thing, and it's that processing of, like, this relates to me. This doesn't relate to me in some ways, but it does relate to me in a lot of ways. And seeing that overlap, because there's so many, like you say, sort of social elements that are in, involved in this trial. And I think that kind of is encouraging people to think like documentarians, because that's what a documentarian does, right? They find a story and they identify what people will connect to or won't connect to, how it pertains to them personally or on a broader scale, what social issues it brings up. So it very much, I think, is like, a step into an interesting way of mythologizing um, one's experiences in a non-documentarian form, but it's very much like trained in the way that a documentarian would do it. Yeah, I think mythologizing is a good word. It's almost like, despite, despite this is the, this is a contradiction, it's based on a real case, the use mm-hmm. verbatim um, testimony, um, you know, so, so characters speaking exactly the way they were in, in the trial, yet it has a kind of real kind of allegorical quality, I think, you know, and obviously, mm-hmm. Uh, Medea is like what this what Ram is um, studying so it's like almost like a myth or something I, I don't know there's something really strange going on and I've got to say I didn't quite get all its mysteries but I just love how it's not doing what I expected it to do as it's not being a Colton drama and it's not telling me about this specific case as much as it's it's, it's creating a kind of a, uh, yeah a kind mm-hmm. of mythical space or something yeah yeah yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think, like, you described it as an intelligent film, and I think it is a profoundly intelligent film, and I think she is a profoundly intelligent thinker. Um, like, I interviewed her, and it was genuinely the most fascinating conversation I've ever had in my life. Like, I could barely keep up. Like, she was so fucking smart. And I think what she does with this film, and I am one of the people that, like, thinks this film is one of the best things ever made. Like, I think it's remarkable. And I think it is that kind of, yeah, bringing together of this sort of crime genre courtroom drama um and then this kind of Medea myth which Alice Diop has like talked about that that was like what the parallels between um Fabian who's like the woman that this is based on her story and then the Medea myth was what like drew her to it 
And with this film, like on the surface, everything is just like so restrained, so quiet, like so very procedural. But it's like what she's investigating is the procedure of testimonial of this woman, Laurence Colley, in the film, like making her own narrative and telling her own account. And in that way, it does kind of become like a bit of a reclamation of the Medea myth and that she has like a power to a certain extent over her narrative. And it is really interesting thinking about this kind of in relation to The Lost Daughter that came out last year and this kind of growing kind of genre of cinema about like maternal ambivalence and about maternal difficulty. But here, what's like really fascinating about this film is that it's like with this added lens of like these women and especially Laurence Colley, who's on trial, being a black woman, who's like someone whose body and whose subjectivity is already considered abject, who's already like considered monstrous, who can't be understood through like the reductive narratives that everyone is like projecting onto her. And I just think it's like such a, like you say, it is that kind of combination, this sort of clash between these two genres that kind of creates this very like haunted liminal space. Um, and yeah, like the kind of what I think about most when I think of this film is those moments where you're either in the courtroom or she's, Mahama um, is walking down the street and it's like you say, almost quite documentary and it's very like naturalistic. And then that like music, the score kicks in and it's like kind of a Greek chorus in like panic. And it's just like so like this kind of haunting energy that's like kind of similar to um, like Matty Diop's Atlantics. I don't know if anyone mm. saw that, but that kind of almost like magical realism the idea of like myth being made so natural that it becomes like uncanny and you feel like frightened by it and it's just like so meticulously done like she has such power over every part of the narrative over every movement of the camera it's just so it's just so clever i'm just like how did she how did that come out of someone's brain yeah. I just think it's very cool I, yeah, I just I just feel like maybe it's, it's sometimes you see a film and you feel like oh I'm missing something because I feel like mm. I, I should if I, maybe I saw it on a big screen or something. For example, there's a moment where um, uh, Lawrence looks at Rama. It's, it's the only time she looks at her on the whole film. She mm -hmm. kind of turns around. Most of the film you've seen it from the judge's point of view, mm. or, or from uh, I think maybe well, some other angle. Um, but she just turns around. She looks directly in Rama's eye and she gives her this kind of smile. Mm. It's this kind of knowing smell, and it's like really unsettling, and it yeah. really unsettles Rama as well. And I just wasn't too sure what I was meant to think of this because, like, like I say, it's this tension of realism and you know, there's there's talk of um, an evil eye for its mm. some cast on her, and it's you're never exactly sure um, <laughs> what the I was, I just found it I I struggled to get the meaning, and clearly Rama is, is settled, and she goes back to her hotel, and she's reeling. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't exactly sure why she was reeling. And I think, I think I'm just like missing something. The yeah. all of it, you know, like from what I understand, it's the fact that like we come to this film as like an audience looking for, like you say, this kind of singular meaning or this singular answer. And what like the courtroom is doing, what like the justice system does, what narrative does, like all of this, we're trying to be like, did you do it or did you not? Like, are you a victim or are you a perpetrator? Like, were you victimized by your white husband or are you actually like kind of this, like the Medea myth is like about this like enraged, crazy woman, right? Like that's how we understand it. Like, which are you? And I think a lot of what like Alice Diop is doing is she's being like, yeah, it's kind of both. And actually you can't really, like there is just a real complexity to these stories that anything that we try to use to kind of find a singular narrative out of it is just going to fail. And I think in a way it is therefore about like almost the failure of narrative, which is like a really interesting thing to make a film about. Um, 
but yeah, I think definitely the first time I watched it as well, it is just, because like you say, it's these little moments. It's someone looking at someone. But then in real life, that's also like what fucks you up, yeah. right? Yeah, like, like that, that sort of little smile to me is like a big moment of the rebellion of mm. the subject of this film, this thing that is there to be observed, mm. this public trial that we're all looking at, either as people with our own moral judgments or as documentarians or as, you know, whatever, people who may or may not connect to these social issues or these personal issues. Um, the most important thing about this is that we're observing it and they're not observing us. Mm. And that imbalance of power is part of what's really uncanny about this film, yeah. that, like, eerie suggestion that there's so much more going on than the objective nature that we apply to people like in that situation. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like very, I don't know. It was just like, I just had it on in the flat and my partner came through just while I had the last like few minutes on and he just shut up and start, <laughs> start, started watching because it, it, it's this like tone that is imbibed throughout the entire film that is so capturing. And I think it would have been great to see it in cinema. I think I might go see it in cinema. I don't know when the release date is, Peter. Maybe it's can... Friday. Friday. Yeah, it's yeah. on the second of February. Third of February. And like Third I say, <laughs> people who don't typically go and see foreign language films might really enjoy this because the language, though it's got so much, like you say, it's so intelligent. There's so much packed into little things like smiling at each other or yeah. um, the sort of these silent flashbacks. The language itself is very simplistic. There's a point in the, one of the few examples of dialogue is when Rama is talking to. Um, uh, Lawrence's mother and it's like were you born in Paris yes do you have brothers or sisters two sisters and it's like it's just like standard grade French said it was going to be like it's great it's just like out of a yeah, textbook yeah because <laughs> yeah, Lanky uh, Melanda as well she's so good like she's mesmerizing it's like yeah. she hypnotizes you almost and she gives this really unusual performance that doesn't really give anything away but is like also deeply emotional I don't know I don't know how to describe it she's like not I wouldn't say it's like his, it's not like You'd imagine the American version would be like histrionic or mm. something. She'd break down. There's a few moments where she does, but it's so calm and collected, but just full of um, emotion. And the way she's shot is really interesting as well, because she's and the way she's, she's dressed, mm. like um, she wears like a kind of uh, brown jumper. Her skin's brown, and then she's against this brown background, and she's like almost like she's fading into the background. And that's what the film's about: is this woman who's invisible. She was hidden away in this apartment while she had this baby on her own completely isolated uh yeah and if, yeah this, the isolation of it is really interesting so yeah just fascinating film that is i think it's cinematic that should, you know i know i know what you mean it is quite static but it is doing things with the camera that's quite interesting and, and when it happens because i think because it's been so still and static when it does something it kind of jolts mm. you you know um so santo mer is out on the third thank you of february <laughs> um okay. i think it's getting a semi like wide release it's on at the cameo in edinburgh and the gft in glasgow and various other places so that's santo mer go and check it out all right and next up is blue jean uh so this is the debut film by georgia oakley it's set in northeast england in the 1980s against the backdrop of section 28 which was uh, Tory legislation that basically banned the quote-unquote promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. So this meant that like councils who run schools couldn't do anything to promote or really say anything about anything other than heterosexual relationships. So the gene of the title is a high school PE teacher and netball coach who is also gay, has a partner, has an active social life, has a close-knit group of pals, and the film is basically following her attempts to try and negotiate 
and navigate these two sides of her life that in the political climate of the time under decree of Tory shitbags <laughs> not things that you are allowed to navigate at the mm-hmm. same time so Jamie Blue Jean what did you think well I think the thing that really struck me first was um, Rosa McCune's performance um, you know she is so clenched and measured uh, and she just never looks relaxed and she looks always stressed and it's because she is stressed you know at school she's really uncomfortable because she's constantly having to kind of manoeuvre around her colleagues and avoid questions about her private life because she knows that she can't just be open because you know she will be under scrutiny if she is you know like she she teaches it's no accident that that, that she's been given the job as a PE teacher because that's like one of the most intimate jobs as a teacher you know she, you've got to you've got to uh, you know the kids are physical you've got to like control them you know you've obviously got the problem with changing rooms so she's under scrutiny she feels stressed about this situation at work and then when she goes to her family she's also got this stress because they are not that supportive you know she's got this horrible brother-in-law her sister is a bit dismissive her sister still has pictures of her wedding day when obviously it's not exactly clear what happened in the wedding but she's clearly not happy so yeah it's, it's, so, so around family she's not happy and then when she's with her lesbian friends she also feels a little bit out of the loop because she feels that she's not like embracing the lifestyle enough or, or they feel that she's a bit uptight and so so it's, it's, it's just a, a, a really tense performance and her face is incredible she's like the most interesting looking actor she looks like David Bowie or something because she's got this kind of blonde hair this really kind of androgynous look angular just all cheekbones and like angles uh, and yeah the camera just loves her she like, follows her around and I think a lot of the, the story kind of falls on her performance really uh, the film itself also looks brilliant um, it's called Blue Jean and it the colour blue kind of like permeates um, you know the, it's as if the, the warmth has been sucked out of this world you know you know how you think of like 80s films mm. you think of like I don't know you think of like George Michael and you think of like Neon and like everybody's having fun like that has not clearly not reached the northeast <laughs> um, like this is like the most bleak place you know? of perennially bad lighting exactly um and yeah i loved i loved all that look of it like everything's kind of aquamarine and like the set design is like everything's bl- there's no kind of warm colors at all it's really interesting where i think the film might fall down a bit is i, th- I feel like it can become a bit and I, I know he's going to shout at me this word I thought it was a little bit soapy like I feel like, I, I feel like, it, I feel like it, it, it kind of made its point and then continually made its point um, and I feel like it, it for, for a film that was quite short like an hour and 40 it felt long to me it felt like of, of it was kind of repeating a lot of the same questions um, but yeah I, mean, I think there's great things and I think the best thing is the community it, it portrays which, which comes out towards the end you know it's like a really joyous actually you know so so like i say she feels uncomfortable at the start but eventually she loosens up and, and sort of finds joy in this kind of queer community she's found where you know they hang out at these kind of cool bars and play pool and they go to this kind of like um squat and have these parties so so it's, it, it's a film that's about it, it doesn't really sort of well because we know like section 28 stayed around like mm. there's no kind of like heroic ending to this we know it there's no kind of like she doesn't win but it's, it's a film that just maybe says that in small acts of rebellion, you, you can, can win. And it, it's sort of quite subtle in that way. So, so I kind of appreciated it wasn't trying to say anything too big. It's a very small story about a big subject. Um, and it says, yeah, small rebellions can sort of win through. And if you, as long as you've got sort of friends around you, you know, it can push back against all this oppression. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, not with the soapy thing, but with most everything <laughs> no else. No one I agrees with the, that. <laughs> uh, like the visibility is, I think, the like keystone of this film. I think it's what will get people really thrilled about it because it just gives uh, butch queer women, especially as a community, this visibility that they don't usually get on screen. And you know, it. I, I think that like um, I went into it expecting similar things that I'd gotten from other like pro queer political triumph films like say Pride and yeah of course the politics overlap greatly but this is very intimate that the performance we're with one character with, with we're with Rosie McEwen uh, throughout all, all of it instead of like following the lives of all these different characters um, and it's in fact the the repeated settings that we keep seeing her flat or her place of work that change from a directional standpoint as we go through this like very emotional journey um, and it starts out so euphoric and so free and such a great community and then it becomes very like dark and cagey and uh, very much like you know you can't trust anyone around you and and it, it's nice to see I don't want to just start like randomly comparing it to films but it is nice to see that like those uh, intense close-ups and long shots and that eerie soundscape like the A24 bag of tricks being used on a film that's not just like a horror film or whatever it's in fact like a really gripping drama um, and I would say that, like, my only criticism was that, well, I'd felt it, when watching it that it ended quite abruptly. I think because I was still sort of trained for certain tropes by other queer films, I was expecting like a pride parade or like, you know, a protest against Section 28. Um, and, you know, we do get a little bit of that. I mean, like, you know, we see financial activism, which is the least sexy of activisms. Um, and, and there's a moment where, you know, not to spoil too much, but she's like, just sort of laughing with freedom in the sun because she's like had the chance to come out to someone. Um, but I also understand that it has to end in a very normal way. Like you were saying, it has to sort of end in a, in a small victory kind of way because it has to credit the queer people that remained in the closet for the sake of their livelihoods and honor their place in the queer community. So I, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I was all revved up and I, I kind of went in thinking I should temper my expectations because it's not going to be as great as Pride. Um, but I think that though being a completely different beast, it still is really, really enjoyable, really, really heartwarming. Anna, he, what did you think? What did I think? Um, I don't think it's soapy. That's <laughs> one him. thing I don't think. Get him. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, this is like a very cleverly done film for reasons that you both said. Um, in that what it's doing is it's locating this like immense law that lasted decades that came to like define sort of queer history in Britain really like to this day through this very like contained very intimate story about not even like a relationship really about one woman and her interiority which I think is really clever one of my favorite things about this film and I think why it has like stayed with me for so long is the ways that it kind of articulates desire. So you have like the desire between Jean and her partner Viv, which is like very real, very bodily. It's like very everyday. It's clear that they're both, they like really, really fancy each other, but they're also very comfortable with each other. And so it's kind of, yeah, like integrating that sort of queer desire into the everyday. And then you have this kind of really interesting through line in the film, which is this kind of younger, more unbound desire that comes from the students that Jean teaches and the ways that they feel about her like this bunch of like female young like kind of mid teenagers who are all deeply repressed like obviously have been brought up even before section 28 came into law in this very like heteronormative atmosphere but they have like this real like psychosexual relationship with this teacher who is obviously not interested with them 
in them at all. And it's just really good at like tracking how desire kind of like manifests in these different ways. Like there's a scene where Jean is like positioning one of her students' arms to like have them show them how to like fucking score in netball. Like I don't know, sport, <laughs> but Sports. like to do something <laughs> in netball. Um, and you can tell that for the student, this is like a real like defining moment in their sexuality or this kind of like the dream sequence that you were talking about where they're like running through the gym and everything is like so blurred and so charged. I think it's really important positioning because essentially what Section 28 did was it did like litigate against desire. And I think this film is very like good at understanding the kind of very real costs to kind of everyday intimacy that that had. Um, and also to kind of someone's growing intimacy, the way that it was intended as something to quote unquote protect children. But really all it did was like actively harm them. That You have these kids that clearly have this sort of like queer desire that is just being completely tamped down. Um, and yeah, I just think it's very, like you say, very, very small, but just feels like it's doing a lot in a very big way. Yeah, and big shouts out to it as well for making clear just how much of a shithole large parts of Britain were in the 1980s. Constant low-level drink driving, everyone smoking inside, (laughs) grey, gloomy. Apart from the one one cafe. Yeah, where he's like, (laughs) put out your cigarette. (laughs) Babe, (laughs) what? Why why is that shot straight there? I love that scene. Um, Yeah, I think it was really good about the kind of just the constant propaganda, not just Mm. of like the actual political propaganda on the news and stuff and like the i mean the speeches are incredible like i i it's actually kind of i don't know like that like they just said that. said that it's like incredible yeah um, there, i like that she appears only in hate speeches i think yeah. that it really highlights her hitler-like qualities mm, yeah yeah and you've got obviously got like blind date is shown as this kind of like weird kind of like saturday night sort of propping up the heteronormative relationships but it, obviously why it resonates now is obviously we see the parallels with like like the trans community now and like how they're being vilified and how they're said to be dangerous and like a danger to women and children. It's the same sort of tactic book, really. And I think yeah. I think it's great that this film's coming along now. So hopefully people can see um, the parallels, the clear parallels between the Tories then and the Tories now. They're exactly the same bunch mm-hmm. of... Yeah. Sorry, I'm allowed to say the same You've said it now. <laughs> I'm back on side. <laughs> had had us in the first half. Not gonna lie. Okay, so Blue Jean is out on the 10th of February. Go and see it. It's very, very good. It's very easy to knock to rage, to snarl, and to satirise. It's oh so simple, for instance, to knock Mrs Thatcher, isn't it? But what are you suggesting should go in the place of the institutions and people you so viciously decry? Well, of course, he's absolutely right. It is ludicrously easy to knock Mrs Thatcher, isn't it? It's the, it's the, it's the simplest, easiest, and, and most obvious thing in the world to remark that she's a shameful, putrid scab, an embarrassing, <laughs> ludicrous monstrosity. Frankly, ashamed to be British and that her ideas and standards are a stain on our national history. That's easy. Anyone can see that. Nothing, nothing difficult about that. Margaret Thatcher, the milk snatcher, everyone's least favourite person in the words of Anna Heatberry's <laughs> off of this podcast writing about Blue Jean. The determination of British cinema to not let Margaret Thatcher rest in peace for a second is one of the few things I can stand about this country. <laughs> you know what? I Top. stand by it. <laughs> Anna Heat with the steel chair. 
Margaret Thatcher found still dead. So <laughs> we want to talk about films both made in the Thatcher era or films that look back on it and look at the way that the British film community has tackled what was a very traumatic and difficult time for the country and the people in it. Um, so naturally I went off and watched an hour-long Adam Curtis documentary from 1995 for a bit of background. So Adam Curtis, latter-day king of playing Aphex Twin B-sides over the top of UC <laughs> news rushes and then telling people that elsewhere something strange was happening. Um, he made this film in 1995 called The Attic, which is not like the most flashy tech thing in the world, but it's a documentary all about the idea that Margaret Thatcher basically used the kind of lore and words and vibe of Winston Churchill and the Second World War to get the public on side with what she was doing in terms of like economics and social policy. Uh, Tony Benn appears in the documentary and says the f something to the effect of Thatcher wanted to take the country back to the good old days, which was roughly the end of the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Got to stand a legend, <laughs> the big man's at it. Um, this film is like, on a kind of cinematic level, it doesn't have huge amounts of flash. I would argue that no one has benefited from easy access to Final Cut Pro more than Adam Curtis. Um, but one interesting element is it intercuts bits of The Innocence, which is a 1961 what? horror, to make it seem like Deborah Carr's character is being haunted by the spectre of Winston <laughs> Churchill. Why? Um, as I believe as an analogy for how Margaret Thatcher was haunted by the ghost of Winston Churchill. That's so funny, I'm sorry. It's, I mean, it's a banger. Um, I would recommend going and watching it because it's interesting from like 1995 is like pre-New Labour and all this kind of stuff. But it's interesting as a reminder of the kind of like base failings, misunderstandings and selfishness at the heart of Thatcherism and as like a kind of base to see where things were in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Use of war rhetoric to just talk about everyday life, the idea that Britain is bad and it's supposed to be bad, endless talk of how things are better, were better back in the day with no citation or uh, evidence provided. And this kind of like idea that it was calling for basically a reconstruction of what were Victorian slash Dickensian like moral values, but with modern economics to make it work. Spoiler. It didn't work. <laughs> um, also, side note, what's up with these Tories and the fucking Victorians? Cut it out, boys. Um, but anyway, so that is the kind of table setting for what Thatcherism is. Bad Victorian pseudo-scientific economics, starting war with Argentina, whole pile of shite. Bad folks, zero out of five. But now- You should teach. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think this podcast is? <laughs> that was an amazing lecture. <laughs> I would I would listen to it again. <laughs> so that's kind of, yeah, so that's table setting for what we're gonna talk about now. So maybe Jamie can go first because Jamie's notes about the film he wants to talk about start with the phrase, This is probably the first great film of the Thatcher era. Seems as good a place to start. Long Good Friday. Yes. So this was made just about a year after she'd come to power uh, as prime minister, uh, so 1980. Um, so so uh, Barry uh, Keefe and director John McKenzie, who's uh, from Edinburgh actually, uh, there's no way they could kind of have known exactly how prescient their film was going to be. Um, but it basically it does like act as the Thatcher years in miniature. So it's like it centers on 
this kind of Cockney gangster played by Bob Hoskins, who who basically has all the kind of Thatcherite goals. You know, he wants to take advantage of shrinking industry and buy up the dock glands and sort of. He's teaming up with like private investors who are actually the mafia. Um, you know, he he exacerbates things in Ireland by like starting a war with the IRA who come over and like start bombing his like his little chiefdom. You know, so like uh, so there's lo- there's lots of parallels. Um, you know, and he's just this kind of like pathetic little Englander who like just wants, uh, who's like, you know, who who just like wants to expand his empire and like it doesn't matter who stands in his way. And he and the and, and what he does is he overreaches. You know, he kind of overestimates his power. A, a bit like Thatcher did towards the end. Like you know, her hubris brought her down really. So there's a lot of parallels. Um, but it's just a really good good thriller, a really good kind of ticking time bomb thriller, a really good picture of that time in England where there were these kind of little Dell boys kicking around who sort of saw opportunity around the corner. And and it's interesting to see because this is the thing about Thatcher. Thatcher did have supporters, like is is you know, she's a psychopath, but people liked her because they felt that she was she was she you know, she was all about the individual and she was up for helping these kind of little entrepreneurs who thought as long as I get by, it doesn't matter how the rest of society does it, you know. And this is this is Bob Hoskins' whole attitude. He wants to take everyone down as long as he can succeed, um, you know, and everyone else fails, he's fine with it. So, so yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice sort of analogy for her career. Um, but, yeah, just an excellent thriller. It's got, like, an amazing cast. Like, Kelly Mellon, uh, Mirren, uh, it's one of her early roles. She's, like, Bob Hoskins' wife. She's kind of this kind of gangster mole who's, like, you're never quite sure who, which side she's on. Um, it's got uh, Charlie from Casualty, uh, who turns up. He's wearing this amazing sort of uh, like sheep's skin coat, and he's like the kind of right hand man. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is like this really ridiculously beautiful assassin, uh, like IRA assassin who, who appears. So there's lots of kind of great stuff in it. Um, and interestingly, uh, John McKenzie, uh, he he he's best known for sort of all his play today films. He made it like. Uh, uh, Just Another Saturday, which was this really good sort of Orange March film, um, The Elephant's Graveyard with uh, Billy Connolly. And it's interesting that all these um, directors, like Mike Lee, like Ken Loach, um, who else, like Alan Clark, all, all made sort of TV in the 70s, then came up and basically uh, turned against Thatcher. And it was interesting just thinking, like, why have, why, where, is, where are those filmmakers now? You know, like, where are the filmmakers who are against the current regime? Um, so I was thinking about that while thinking about this one, like, like how cool that w- when Thatcher was in power, that there was all these kind of filmmakers who were ready to like sharpen the knife and make kind of great films about how awful she was. And I can't really see that happening now. You know. You mean you don't like Kenneth Branagh's <laughs> whatever the fuck that was him playing Par- Boris Johnson? Uh, <laughs> you don't think that's like <laughs> cinema's rebellion? I, 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 I thought you were talking about Belfast. <laughs> no. <laughs> Kenneth yeah. Branagh taking a couple of big <laughs> shots. Um, yeah, two things about that that are uh, kind of particularly key to note for this conversation. One, people coming up doing things in the 60s and 70s and then moving on to them in the 80s. Maybe some of the things that Margaret Thatcher did have resulted in a removal of the steps you need before getting to make a film. We'll maybe come on to that later, he said, pointing at Lewis. Uh, but also, to any... British people, and chiefly English people, I would please ask you, Google Ireland once. (laughs) Just just one time. One time's enough, and then you'll be aware of it, and you'll be aware that it is a thing. Because this did also come up in in the attic, the idea that, like, 
oh, Margaret Thatcher decided she was going to go absolutely hog wild in Ireland. Uh, and the, she basically just got into loads and loads of, basically s- tried to effectively start a war with the IRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then started complaining when they started fighting her. Because this was around the time of all the kind of May's Prison hunger strikes and Bobby Sands mm. and things like that as well. So truly, scorched earth everywhere. Cannot stress this enough. We're not fans. <laughs> um, so we will come to Lewis shortly. But Anahit, what did you want to talk about to kind of add to this pile on? <laughs> this pile on. My favourite thing deserved, to do. The deserved pile on. I should say, when we were like planning this episode, there was a point where we were like, well, we'll do about Thatcher like against the Peter was like, should we bring someone on that's four? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where would we, where would yeah. we find them? I'm not was, trapped in what? here with you. You're trapped in here with me, etc., etc. I mean, Liz Truss isn't doing much now. She could, yeah, that's yeah. true. She could come on. Friend of the pod. <laughs> Friend of the pod. Oh my god. Um, so I wanted to talk about Pride, um, which is slightly basic bitch, but it is genuinely one of my favorite films. And also, I didn't have time to watch anything else, so <laughs> that's what we're doing. Which is, I think, like most people probably will have seen it. If you haven't. Oh my god, you have to go and watch it. It is genuinely one of the sweetest, nicest films of all time. It's set during the miners' strike. Um, was made in 2014, I think. Has like this incredible cast of like Dominic West, Andrew Scott, George Mackay when he was still like a bit of a baby, like you know Imelda Staunton, Bill Nye. Oh my god, like this incredible, incredible class. And it's set during the miners' strike, and it kind of focuses on the real life um, solidarity that a group of queer people called lesbians and gays support the minors that's what they're called right mm-hmm. that's what it stands for lgsm um the kind of solidarity that they extended towards the minors by helping them raise money by helping like they put on this enormous concert that i think bronski beat played out which is like mm-hmm. so fucking sick called um yeah yeah the fits and perverts yeah yeah, yeah. Concert. like concert which is just like very cool so they were just like sick and this film is just a really like gentle very easy to watch but very like stunning example of like how solidarity operates so the idea that you don't just like help or care for your own so the kind of minors end up like helping the queer community the queer community end up helping the minors it's not just that you're helping your own within your own kind of like marginalized group um has like this really beautiful energy um really great soundtrack side note one of the things i really loved about blue jean um was what is it called um, oh my god, my Monday. mind. New Order, yes, mm-hmm. New Order's Blue Monday, which is just like, whenever that comes up in a film, you're like, this is gonna be a fucking banger. Um, and yeah, it's just like very sweet and funny and warm, but also very like politically angry and kind of dressing up this very strident kind of anti-Thatcher critique in what is like quite a palatable and easy to watch like bit- British comedy drama. And I guess like it makes me wonder because it is such a, like films like that, like Billy Elliot, that are these kind of great, like crowd pleasing films. These are not sort of like, you know, very like small indie political, whatever. It is just really interesting, kind of like my letterbox review said, how much British cinema is just like obsessed with this period of kind of the Thatcher government. And I do wonder if it is partly because it was like a time that was caught at two such extremes. So you have like the rise of the queer scene, you have like the punk movement, you have this almost like, kind of rising anti-capitalist sort of sentiment. And then you have this enormous, like harsh authoritarian rule. And I think that tension potentially is, because it feels like in cinema and in British culture generally, 
apart from World War II, it is where people keep returning to the most. Um, and Pride was made about four four years into the current uh, long stint of the Tories. Um, and I think there is also an element of you're like trying to look back and look at, like understand how we ended up where we are right now, right? Like so much of what Thatcher did, like the dissolution of the NHS, the welfare state, like anti-protest, anti-strike, like it feels very, like you were saying before, like it feels very prescient to now. And I think films like this, like they maybe help us understand a little bit why we're so fucked. Um, and yeah, Pride is a really exa- lovely example of that. It also has like one of the best endings of any film ever. I like cry and cry and cry. I think the last election, the 2019 election, I was so numb that I physically couldn't like emote about it for days. And then eventually, like after three days, I was like, I have to watch Pride because I have to, like I have to cry, like I have to get over this. <laughs> I need catharsis and it worked. So yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's a very good film. Yeah. Very good film. <laughs> is it on anything? I don't know. God, what's that? My friends all have like DVDs that they pass. Yeah, on it keeps going off and coming on, and yeah, you can. It's very accessible. Oh, yeah, you can watch now apparently with a Netflix subscription, and apparently it's also on Disney Plus, which well, feels weird. It feels like it can't be on both. It'll be on something. It'll be on something. Yeah. You can watch it. Yeah. Um, and then the thing about so then to bring it kind of full circle when we talked about why there maybe aren't as many films coming along and why there isn't that kind of groundswell of new filmmakers. One of the things about Thatcherism was it was a lot of it was kind of powered by privatizing and selling off Mm. and reducing the role of the state in your life, which means that when you get 20 years down the line, the effects of what has been done 20 years hence are still very visible. Mm. And a film that is all about kind of set against this backdrop is the one that Lewis wants to talk about. the Full Monty. The Full Monty. Which is set in the kind of aftermath of industry, kind of industrial collapse, basically. Yeah, it's a bit cheeky of me because I've like gone and done a film that came out after the Thatcher government and is also, I think, set after the Thatcher government. But it overlaps for me a lot with Pride mm. because it's about working class solidarity, building communities, queer acceptance. Except it doesn't have that um, sort of anti-Thatcher text that Pride certainly has. I think there's a point in Pride where Bill Nye just shouts into the hills at <laughs> Thatcher or something like that. Thatcher isn't mentioned in the film, Monty, you know. that Instead, um, there is no place for the anger to be directed. The, the you know, Thatcher is gone. It, it's just the consequences, the state of the world that she's left it in. So if anybody hasn't seen the film, Monty, it often winds up on those TV shows that are like Britain's top 100 mm. film countdown things. Um and is about six men, many of whom were former steel workers in this like town in or near Sheffield or something like that, which is now a like post-industrial wasteland. They just sit around in like scrapyards all day and like grafting and stuff like that. Um, and they decide in order to make money because they're heavily impoverished to uh, put on a male striptease show like the Chippendales. Um, and that's the thing, it's like, you know, like Pride, quite family friendly, well not family friendly in the sense that it's about nudity, but it's quite <laughs> fun and uplifting. And like it's, I watched it as a kid, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's very yeah. heartwarming. Um, and also massively educational in class issues and stuff like that. But uh, it, despite that, it's also quite realistic. Like it, the, it covers so many bases where 
the reason that these people are successful in what they do, even though they they don't have the the background or the chiselled bodies of Chippendale dancers, is because they're part of the community. Like they make it key that the reason everyone wants to come and see them get their kit off is because they all know these people. And the the fact that they don't look like Chippendales is like massively part of their conflict overcoming this. With uh, Mark Addy, who has the most like heartbreaking arc where he just doesn't accept like he can't do it because he has such poor body confidence but his wife is there for him and um it's just like really prescient in in pointing out the role that the community had that people's uh, spouses had in like uplifting them and and also queer acceptance is a part of it there is a, a a gay romance that becomes like another yet another b plot Slight segue, it's the funniest two characters, one of whom is introduced waiting in a car on the side of the road and they humorously don't realise he's trying to kill himself. <laughs> They're like, okay, so we've like, you know, jump, jump started your car, you've given you directions, you're on your way, see you later. Oh God, wait a minute. Um, and then there's another guy who uh, shows up at auditions but can't sing or dance. However, the second that they see his penis, they're like, you're in. Um, so really funny but also just like covering a lot of bases and even though it can't be as forthright in its political education in its um like textual in its in its textual discursion of what has caused this and what can be done it sets really good role models out of its characters um who are you know accepting and supportive to one another and also has uh, a plotline in there about the guy's son who is you know a kid who's struggling to accept that his dad is like this desperate uh, grafter um, until the fact that he like brings a community together which like l puts home the idea that it doesn't matter what you do it just matters that you do it right and you bring in everyone that you can and you correctly identify you know where that rage should be diverted so, a really good film. Lots of different levels for something that has such a wide appeal and uh, can't recommend it enough. I honestly thought when you said, if you're gonna do, I thought you were gonna start singing Wham. <laughs> when you, I thought he was gonna start telling me that if I was gonna do something, I should do it right. <laughs> so, The Attic, the Adam Curtis documentary is on the BBC iPlayer. The Long Good Friday isn't streaming on anything yet, but it is on film four on the 10th of February. So it'll probably be on the Channel 4 website after that. Mm. Uh, Pride is on Netflix and Disney Plus, and The Full Monty is on Disney Plus. All good films. Go and watch them. You might learn something. Maggie, 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 out, out, out. Honk, honk, honk. <laughs> eh, eh, eh. We got her. Yeah, Folks, we, we got her. We need to play that punk song. What was the song out of Legion? Where is it? Uh, it goes Maggie. Oh, come on, I can't remember. I thought you were talking about the one from Wizard of Oz that like went to the top of the, the charts. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> the ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch is dead. Yeah. That was so funny. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone that was outraged, like, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and before we go, we're going to talk about some stuff that we're looking forward to. Jamie is off to consult a column that he wrote last week. In the meantime, <laughs> I can tell you that Fire of Love, the craft. Uh, what's it Maurice and what's Lydia Lydia Katia 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 and Maurice Craft documentary that's just been nominated for an Oscar is getting three free screenings at the cameo this weekend hmm. and I think National Geographic are on like a kind of Oscar nom victory lap <laughs> so oh, good for them. it is on on Friday and Saturday about six o'clock ish and Sunday morning at 11 a.m 
So if you want to see some volcanoes and some great hats, um, that's at the Cameo in Edinburgh and free. So go and check it out. And the other thing I wanted to flag up was a new film club at the CCA called Inclinations, which is a kind of like DIY volunteer run film club thing, that like series of screenings and they're screening Just Don't Think I'll Scream, which is an essay film by a French filmmaker called Frank Beauvais. And it is made up of the just like excerpts of the 400 or so films that he watched over a four month period of like isolation in his house. Fucking hell. Um, with like a kind of voiceover over the top. As we discussed from my mentioning of Adam Curtis, this kind of thing is extremely my shit. <laughs> so there we go. So that's two things I'm looking at. So that's at CCA on the 8th of February. Uh, Jamie, have you found anything in the work of Jamie Dunn that you want to recommend? <laughs> well, I was going to suggest there is a cool. Um, uh, series of German films from the Wehrmacht era uh, coming up. Oh, that was in the heads up as well. Oh, I also wrote about go. this. I did not remember. So if, you know, German expressionism is your bag, you've got you get Dr. Caligari, you've got Metropolis, M, there's more in that series. So always good to revisit those films. They're great. And again, another, uh, you know, political movies as well. Hmm. Uh, Lewis, do you have anything? No. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, I think we're, I don't think Annie's got anything. I think we're probably done. Um, yes. So yeah, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this, then uh, yeah, just um, follow the pod wherever you get your pods. Subscribe, whatever the button on your various things is called. Because every time I'm like subscribe, someone tells me there's no subscribe button. It's follow instead on Spotify. It's like you'll work it out. But anyway, <laughs> who's telling you that? <laughs> subscribe to the pod. Uh, you can follow us on social media at the Skinny Mag. Um, and you can find all of our individual handles in the show notes of this episode. Thanks to Josh and Upload Studios, uploadstudios.co.uk. We will be back in two weeks' time. Margaret Thatcher, we're all glad she's dead. Yeah. yeah. Bye, yeah, totally. everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>